Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast where, with Jay Rosen, we take a look at movies from the compliance perspective. But before we get to our podcast, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You Would you like to explore some compliance topic? Well, I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm looking for new podcasters. If you've wondered how you might start a podcast, please listen to our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, Jay and I began a multi-part exploration of the Star Trek movies. As many of you know, I did an entire series this summer on the intersection of compliance and Star Trek, the original series. Today, we begin with Star Trek, the motion picture, and give it our thoughts. Popcorn and Compliance is produced by the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud part of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox and Jay Rosen back for another episode of Popcorn and Compliance. As many of you may know, I did a series this summer on trekking through compliance on the intersection of Star Trek and compliance. Well, Jay and I are going to take up Star Trek, the movies, um, as a continuation slash inspiration from that series. And of course, it fits directly into our series, Popcorn and Compliance. So, Jay, uh, I'm glad we were able to uh, not repurpose, but uh, double up on uh, some of our podcasts and certainly uh, our joint loves of the movies and Star Trek. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So we are going to do these in chronological order, and so that means we start with the 1979 release of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, In the Trek world, I don't think there was a more anticipated event than this. Jay, um, I guess we're going to have to answer the question at the end, did it work? But uh, you could start off by telling us the, uh, the backstory, the inside Hollywood part. So uh, when the original television series was canceled in 1969, uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator, lobbied Paramount to continue the franchise through a feature film. The success of the series in syndication convinced the studio to start work on this. And in 1977, um, Paramount, uh, while they were moving forward with the film, decided that it would be better to go back to its TV roots and they were now calling this internally Star Trek Phase 2. Their thinking quickly changed when uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Steven Spielberg movie, did extremely well at the box office and convinced Paramount that science fiction films other than those named Star Wars could do well. The studio next turned the project over to the television division, reasoning that since the roots of the franchise lay in TV, writers there would better to be able to develop the script. Initial writers lists included Francis Ford Coppola, James Gordon, George Lucas, Ernest Lehman, and Robert Block. And then there was also a list of uh, uh, probably a wish list of directors that also included Coppola, Spielberg, Lucas, and Robert Wise, who was uh, a little bit long in the tooth compared to the rest of the crew there. Uh, Early work was promising, and they brought on Philip Kaufman, who did the right stuff. 
Unfortunately, uh, Michael Eisner and uh, Barry Diller, who are running the studio, decided that they wanted to uh, turn this into uh, a TV script. So they went off on that. And then uh, Barry, which uh, came to pass very shortly after or maybe 15, 20 years later with the launch of the Fox Network, Barry Diller planned on anchoring a new Paramount television network with the Star Trek series. Uh, Diller had grown concerned by the direction Star Trek had taken and suggested to Roddenberry that it was time to take the franchise back to its roots. Uh, Flashing forward, the movie gets made. Uh, There are a lot of um, creative license that was taken from the television series. They used some of the old sets and they used uh, a script that really, when you look, look at what critics said, felt a lot more like a bloated television episode that was brought to the screen. Nevertheless, uh, the movie was released in North America. I remember going to see it with my uncle in December of 1979. The motion picture received mixed reviews, many of which faulted it for a lack of action scenes and over-reliance on special effects. The final production cost ballooned to $46 million, and it earned $139 million at the box office. This was short of studios' expectations, but enough for Paramount to propose a less uh, expensive sequel. Um, the end of the day, uh, these were some of the uh, numbers. Uh, in the United States, the film sold the most tickets of any film in the franchise up until Star Trek, which was released in 2009, and remains the highest grossing film of the franchise. Again, as I said, the motion picture's budget of $46 million, including costs, and they brought in $111 million. So normally when you look at a feature film's uh, production cost, you need to actually triple it just to get into the black. So if they spent $46 million, they would approximately have to bring in $150 million. Uh, in terms of critical response, uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave the film a 42% rating based on 38 reviews. And the quote was featuring a patchwork script and a dialogue heavy storyline whose biggest villain is a cloud. Star Trek, the most in picture is less than an, in, than an auspicious debut for the franchise. Uh, pundits also refer to it sometimes as Star Trek, the motionless picture. But uh, I think it was important to get this in to kick off the series of films. And uh, in terms of what we'll talk about later in this series, I believe the films get better, uh, more more comfortable and confident in what they're doing. But, Tom, what are your thoughts on this? So, Jay, as you know, I am a uber Trekkie and I have studied uh, this movie extensively. Uh, and your very great summary really, uh, unfortunately, doesn't hit on the chaos that this production uh, had during it. And I know that you, as a uh, uh, screenwriter, I don't, I don't know if recovering would be right because I think you still dabble. Nevertheless, uh, you you know the chaos firsthand. Well, whatever chaos you experienced, this one was triple chaos. Um, the... Um, First of all, during up right up until the production, it was not clear whether this would be a television show or a movie. Uh, Paramount uh, wanted to bring uh, this out as a movie initially. Then um, after Star Wars, 
They doubly wanted to do that. Uh, then they decided they were going to go back to a television series. Um, and then um, they decided that then the Star Wars came out and they decided, no, they had to make a, a science fiction movie because they saw the money in it. And that went up literally to when production started. And um, writing for movies is very different than writing for t- uh, television programs. Production of both is very different. Uh, it, it is, you know, M- Venus and Mars. So uh, that was uh, very chaotic. Uh, the second thing was there were uh, movie writers and there were television writers. And Gene Roddenberry obviously is a television writer. And apparently the rewrites were going on <clears throat> literally day by day by these two groups. And Robert Wise, who, as you suggest, was long in the tooth, but I'm going to suggest had a world of experience and was able to mediate this literally um, <clears throat> between two warring camps uh, every day he went uh, to work. Uh, he worked on uh, the Magnificent uh, Ambersons. Uh, that's how long his Hollywood career went back. And, of course, he won an Oscar for The Sound of Music. So um, pretty well-established uh, director. The chaotic nature of the production led to delay after delay after delay, uh, obviously driving up the cost. And when the movie premiered, it was Robert Wise who drove the last reel, because this is back when we had reels of film, to the, uh, uh, actually flew it to New York for the premiere. So they didn't even have the last reel produced uh, to take to New York. And he had to fly it there and they slapped it in for the, for the um, preview in New York. The um, movie was excoriated for its production cost, but uh, and that came into play, that I think, and we'll talk about in uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, in another episode. But the production cost of $48 million is uh, really a misnomer because this uh, project had been in production since at least 1975, all, and that is uh, two iterations of television shows plus one movie. All of those production costs were assigned to this movie. Moreover, um, in the early 70s was a short animated series of Star Trek. And for reasons I have not been able to fathom uh, or unearth, uh, the production cost of the animated series was also assigned to this movie. Um, so uh, the production cost, um, of course, ballooned because of the chaotic nature of the filming. And the, the true production costs are actually closer to 15 to 20 million. And if you factor that in with an opening weekend revenue of uh, nearly uh, 40, uh, excuse me, $84 million, uh, in 1979 dollars, you see that uh, it was actually a stunning success. That stunning success was because of people, certainly people like me, it may have been people like you, who are frothing literally for Star Trek to come in out as a movie, certainly after Star Wars. And so the audience uh, build up an expectation was as big as anything up to probably uh, when J.J. Abrams rebooted the uh, Star Trek series in 09, I believe. Uh, And it may, um, uh, so from the Star Trek uh, universe. So uh, lots of issues on productions. The the end result of the cost and critical um, review of this really led to Gene Roddenberry uh, being uh, phased out of or kicked upstairs um, starting with Star Trek II and, and started the, the long road to, away from his formal association with something that he is most associated with, which is Star Trek. So the 
Tom, I was just going to throw in that in addition to you being a big Trekkie, you're also a huge fan of Star Wars. Can you take a couple moments and talk about the chaos with regard to the special effects and how you think uh, the end result of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture compares with the special effects uh, level of expertise that was set with the original Star Wars trilogy? So the original Star Wars trilogy not only set the bar, it raised the bar for special effects. And you have to um, you have to uh, say that that was uh, George Lucas's vision. He didn't execute it. He created a company that executed Industrial Light and Magic. And Dennis Murren uh, won several Oscars for uh, technical Oscars for the special effects he and his teams created. Um, and it was really, though, I have to credit there, the driving vision and force of George Lucas describing what he wanted with the technicians who created it for him. But even there, it was literally at the last minute. But they, they were at the very cutting edge. And unfortunately for Star Trek, uh, um, they were going to be measured against that. And they were using technology that was available for television shows. And uh, it was a near disaster in production um, so that the special effects, uh, they had to basically cut back to, one, what they knew, two, what they could do uh, technically, and three, what the budget allowed them to do. So I think many people, myself included, were disappointed with the special effects uh, uh, with two very notable exceptions. One, of course, is when they went um, to light speed, or rather, I should say, warp speed. Uh, sorry for that cross-cultural reference. But the second was um, the stunning 10-minute opening scene where they took a very small shuttle, two-person shuttlecraft uh, with Scotty and Kirk to the Enterprise. And it allowed a outside or exterior view of the revamped and rebuilt Starship Enterprise which uh, to this day just stuns me. And when I rewatched this movie in anticipation or preparation, rather, for this podcast, I had forgotten that it was just a magnificent scene. And so I forgave a lot of the later special effects, particularly at the end. I thought it got uh, close to a little bit uh, hammy, if not cliched, uh, when they actually set foot on V'ger. But um, the, the special effects, I think, were disappointing uh, you've called it more than once the motionless picture. Uh, I think the pacing uh, really uh, was not there in this film, uh, and I d- attribute that to the fact that this started out as a as a pilot for the reboot of Star Trek II, and then it got expanded into a movie, and they really didn't know how to do that. So um, uh, lots of problems, but... Um, the 10 minute scene opening scene is still, I think one of the most stunning scenes in all science fiction. So it sounds like we've got a pretty good grip on the popcorn aspects. I know you've been thinking about some of the compliance aspects. So what are some of the lessons about compliance and ethics that we can draw from Star Trek, the motion picture? So, uh, I'm going to put a posit five, uh, for us, Jay. Um, um, one leadership leadership is about perspective and, um, I think Captain Kirk had a great perspective uh, in this case or in this movie. He was pretty much able to keep his perspective intact throughout the original series and certainly during this movie. Uh, But sometimes you have to be ready to change your perspective when that's important and critical. And I think that's something Kirk was also very good at. Uh, Two, sometimes you have to break the rules. And I don't mean do things illegally, 
obviously in Star Trek, the the prime rule is the prime directive. We've seen that uh, broken several times in several t- uh, television episodes and several different movies. Um, but each time Kirk had to break uh, the rules of the prime directive, he did it as a part of a greater moral base. And if I could draw uh, an analogy to kind of modern day, uh, United Airlines has been excoriated for uh, its conduct with customers, most notably when they had a uh, physician physically dragged off a plane um, so that they could put a, a late running cr- uh, crew in a passenger seat uh, because that's the rules that they had to follow. And uh, the uh, ground crew and uh, gate crew apparently didn't believe they had the flexibility to amend those rules. Uh, we've seen instances where people wore dresses or uh, clothing that apparently didn't meet the rules, and we had family members separated over that. So sometimes you do have to uh, break the rules. And if I could maybe conversely tie it to uh, your procedures must be precise. Uh, you and your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors, I think, talk about culture as well as anyone. Um, I'm the nuts and bolts guy. So I talk about uh, policies, procedures, internal controls. And I think that they have to be precise so that it allows you uh, to work through uh, the issues. I think it's all about process. So they have to be precise. Um Next one is really not about a captainship, although it's it's leadership for every captain. But I think it's a critical uh, component of every compliance officer, which is to know uh, not only the facets of what you're responsible for, but what others are responsible for as well. Um, in uh, this case, Kirk could pilot the ship if he needed to. Uh, he may not be the chief engineer, but he was able to come up with some ideas that Scotty was implemented or a germ of an idea that Spock could implement. Um, and as a compliance professional, you got to know how to read a spreadsheet. You got to know about profit and loss. You have to know how the business does operate. You need to know what's the role of HR in their core function. What's the role of internal audit and finance? Um, because when, when it all, um, in the compliance arena, cutting across those silos is critical. And that's obviously what a captain can do. Uh, because he, he is the captain or she is the captain. But um, as uh, my father once explained to me, once an officer, always an officer. And if you're an officer in the Navy, uh, you're expected to know everything, uh, whether or not you know it at the time. If you don't know it, you better go learn it. And that's the definition of officer. And I think that's a fair way for a compliance officer to think about their job. And finally, uh, you have to be curious. You have to know history. You have to understand uh, the enforcement actions of what got companies into trouble. Uh, and you need to um, feel like or be a part of, rather, uh, where you've been to know where you're going. Uh, all of those lead uh, to kind of the biggest lesson I see. And I know I said I had five, but I guess this one, for me, sums it all together. And that is um, at the end of uh, the movie, and this podcast is audio only, so you can't, uh, the listeners can't see what I'm about to, to show you, Jay, which is when Spock puts his hand out and says, as great as V'ger is, as much as V'ger knows, V'ger can't do this. And he puts out his hand and he shakes hands with Kirk and he says, it's the humanity, it's the human touch. And that message just struck me like a 10 ton brick 
when I saw it in 1979. It still resonates with me today. Every time I hear uh, people talk about how AI is actually going to negatively impact compliance, it's negatively impact corporations, negatively impact employees, I always think of AI will never have the human element. Uh, Whatever data they can mine, whatever data that can be uh, generated, however fast that can be done, whatever the depth of an AI tool is, it doesn't have the human element. It not only cannot feel, but it can't think in a way that brings all of these things together. It can do what it's told to do. And so that point at the end of the movie that uh, V'ger did not have humanity, and that's what V'ger wanted. And that's when V'ger took control of uh, the two of um, of uh, the the two Star Trek uh, officers at the end. Uh, that's what V'ger wanted was that humanity. And so did we see a new life form evolve? I wish we could have played that out in another movie. Maybe we did or maybe we didn't. But um, it, it really at the end, that scene I think is – as important for every compliance practitioner to uh, to think about as as any other city. My uh, rating might be a little bit less sanguine than yours, but uh, believe it or not, I think that uh, going back to myself in 1979, thinking about the anticipation sitting in the Bedford uh, cinemas and Bedford Mall cinemas and waiting to watch it. Uh, after all was said and done, and everything that flows from this original one. I give it a half a bucket of fresh popcorn. What about you, Tom? My expectations were so great for this movie. Um, I'm not sure they could have been met. Um, Having said that, I absolutely love the reboot in 2009, the original Star Wars, uh, then Episode 1, now Episode 4. A New Hope uh, is still one of my favorite movies of all time. So science fiction can be great. Expectations can be met. Um, but it's still Star Trek, so uh, I can't give it less than, than a full bucket. Um, the the first 10 minutes, uh, once again, are some of the finest minutes of science fiction uh, I can remember, and um, I look forward, uh, look forward to the next series of movies. So uh, I'm going to give it a full bucket. Uh, I do recognize that uh, even my, uh, I can't remember what my father's age was in 1979, but uh, he thought it uh, emphasized special effects a little too much for his taste. He wanted a little more action. And I think you're right uh, that it it could and should have had a bit more action in it. But it rebooted uh, the franchise that led to Star Trek, the next generation that led to a series of movies, some great, some, you know, we'll talk about. uh, And it led to uh, where we are today in in the greater Star Trek world. So, uh, and then finally to Gene Roddenberry. I mean, he carried that flame. He uh, he went to all those conferences. He went to those conventions. I saw him speak in 1975 at the University of Texas, and he said there would be a Star Trek movie, and he was right. There was a Star Trek movie. So um, it's still one to, to watch, uh, still one to enjoy. Um, uh, seeing Spock uh, come aboard the Enterprise was a, was a great scene, and um, Matt Deckard, uh, son of uh, Com- Commodore Decker from um, uh, the, the original series uh, was also a great tie-in. So uh, as you can tell, I love the movie and I love Star Trek. So uh, that's kind of where I check out, Jay. Great. So just to recap, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, gives this movie a full 
bucket of popcorn. And Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, is a little bit less forgiving, says a half a bucket here, but we're definitely willing to uh, come on back and see what happens uh, on our next episode when we take a look at Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So uh, on behalf of Tom and Jay, thanks for joining us for Popcorn and Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I certainly hope you enjoyed Jay's recitation of the facts and his Inside Hollywood uh, section. I found this uh, really interesting in terms of uh, some of the lessons for compliance practitioners, both in leadership and in compliance. I hope they will provide a thought-provoking experience for you as well. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm available at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again for another episode of Popcorn and Compliant. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.